Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. We're going to uh, start out reading the first 18 verses. We're going to read almost half the chapter. It says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of a book, of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldst not, neither hath pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. <clears throat> by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, set down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So this first half of this chapter right here, basically what it's showing us is that the true sacrifice for sin, it wasn't going to be like the ones they did in the Old Testament, that some of those things they did daily. I mean, the priests, they, it was a busy job. They would daily be offering sacrifices. There were some things that they would do annually. But all of those things they did, they, it was a reminder, it was a constant reminder of their sin. And it was something that they had to do every day, over and over again. But, like we've seen, been seeing the last couple weeks, now we are in this new covenant that is a better covenant And one of the things that's better about this covenant is everything that needed to be done, it was done one time by our better high priest that we have than the ones that they had. That better sacrifice only needed to be done one time. And because it's already been done and taken care of, the prophecy is fulfilled that our sins and iniquities will be remembered no more. So in other words... The punishment happened, and now we can move on. And we don't have to deal with it anymore. I mean, how would you like it? You know, this is a bad thing, too, for parents. You know, if your kids do something they shouldn't do, you know, give them their punishment, and then be done with it, all right? You know, don't sentence them to spankings every day for the next month, you know? I mean, try to to come up with something that they can end. You know, don't come again five years later and say, you know what, Tommy, you're getting spanked. What, what for? Remember when you hit your sister five years ago? You know, man, I thought we got that taken care of already, you know? And it's nice to know that, you know what, all right, I'm done. It's been taken care of. I don't need to worry about it anymore. And that's one of the great things 
about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It took care of our sins and God doesn't remember them anymore. They're not going to get brought up again. We're not going to be held accountable for those things. Imagine what it'd be like to living, you know, let's say you had murdered somebody in the past and maybe you got away with it. Maybe nobody knew about it, but you know, you would always have to worry. What if I get caught? You know, what if I have to one of these days pay for that sin? That would be a heavy burden to bear. And what if as Christians or, you know, what if as believers, if, you know, the idea that you could lose your salvation was true and to have to go through life wondering, am I going to have to pay for my sins? That would stink. But thank God we have eternal security. We don't have to worry about that. We all, it's all, it was all taken care of once. Jesus died on the cross once. He offered the sacrifice once. And we only, had to get, we only have to get saved one time. Only one time do we ever need to get saved. And you'll notice in verse at the end of chapter 9, because um, once again, almost every time you go into a chapter, it's kind of continuing a thought it ended in. And it says, it mentions in verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. Okay, you know, just say, it's not like that. That's how it was then. That's not the way it is now. It was a one-time thing. It never, it's never going to happen again. So those sacrifices they did back then, it mentions how they couldn't take away sins. And the reason for that, it mentions in verse 1, that they were a shadow of good things to come. We talked about that last week. We talked a little bit about shadows. And it's a reminder of that here this week. Those were just shadows. Those were figures of what was to come. It wasn't, it wasn't the real thing. And so, uh, the annual sacrifices, it meant a constant reminder of sin. And it's, we see that in verses 2 through 4. But God wanted our sins to be forgotten. Okay? Look at what it says in Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 20. All right? Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 20. I like to bring this verse up to preachers whenever they um, get mad when we use Matthew 24 and we apply it to us as believers. And they're like, that's for the Jews. You know, who is that written to? It's written to the Jews. Well, any Baptist preacher will use Micah 7, 18 through 20 whenever it suits them. And it's appropriate when they do it. But it says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And if you're not sure who Micah's written to and who this is talking to, it says, Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So who's Micah written to? It's written to the Jews. All right? you know, who's Hebrews written to? It's written to the Jews. And what is it talking about in there? How God is going to do something so He is going to be able to take away our sins and not remember them anymore. Now, we're used to this, okay? We understand this as Christians because this is one doctrine that, you know, Christians pretty much across the board understand, especially Baptists, that our sins, when we get saved, it's forever, okay? Our sins are not remembered anymore. 
We just sang the song Sunday in church, you know, in the depths of the sea of God's forgetfulness. There's a lot of songs that talks about our sins being cast in the depths of the sea, being removed as far as the east is from the west. That was something very specific that God promised to Jacob, to Abraham, to Israel. And it is appropriate, for, but it was only to the remnant. Well, who was the remnant? The remnant were the righteous. The remnant were the believers. The remnant were the saved. And so, yes, if you sing those songs, if you, a preacher gets up, even, even if it's a Zionist preacher, if he gets up and he uses these passages talking about himself, he is actually preaching the truth when he does that. This is one thing these preachers for years, while being inconsistent, actually got right when they were preaching this stuff. It was completely appropriate for them to do that. Psalms 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgression from us. And this is a big deal because of the fact that in the Old Testament, they were constantly reminded of their sins. Now, keep this in mind because you you need to know this to fully understand a very well-known verse that is also preached in every Baptist church, even Zionist ones. And it's actually, they're preaching it right too, even though they're being inconsistent when they preach it. Okay, And it's important to understand this. It was a regular thing for Jews for centuries to be constantly reminded of their sins. And they were reminded by those sacrifices. It was something, they were constantly, you know, every year they're bringing these lambs. All the time, they're bringing these offerings to the priest. Why? For their sins. It was, they were constantly reminded of it. And they needed that. Okay? They needed that. God wanted them to understand that they were sinful. And God did that too Once again, we looked at it last week, those were shadows. That way, when Jesus Christ came and did the final sacrifice, they would see what was going on and they would understand what was being done. And many of them did. So, in this this passage here, this is a big deal because once again, just like we've seen in some of the previous weeks, things are changing for Israel. Things are changing for them. If they are, and if they are going to continue being the people of God, they've got to follow after Christ. They've got to quit doing those sacrifices. They've got to stop doing that. They've got to move on to these things. And this was going to be a big change for them, not doing the regular sacrifices. But they should have been thrilled about that. This is great. And, and it was probably a hard thing for them to grasp. Wait a minute. You're saying one sacrifice takes care of my sins forever? Yep. That's exactly what he's saying. And, it's because, and it was able to do that. Why? Because it was the blood of Jesus Christ. He was the spotless lamb. But wait a minute. We always had to do these things. You know, there was the yearly things. There was the daily things that the priest did. This is the way we've always done it. Yeah, but that's because those things were just a shadow of what was to come. That was a picture of something that was to come. But Jesus Christ did it once and for all. And you know what? This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at what it says in uh, verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Wherefore, he, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offerings, thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. 
Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of a book is written to me to do thy will, O God. Uh, and then look at Psalms chapter 103, verse 8. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous of mercy. Um, wait, that's not the one I want. Uh, no, no, no. Let's go to. Uh, oh, Psalms 40. I'm sorry. Psalms chapter 40 is what we're looking for. In verse 6, it says, Sacrifice and offerings thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offerings and sin offerings thou hast not required. Then that, and, you know, that, and that had to be puzzling for them back then too. It's like, well, if you didn't require these things, why did you tell us to do them? Why were we commanded to do these things in Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of a book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written within my heart. Okay? So right there, that's the passage that was being quoted from Psalms. And I believe that's talking about Jesus who went and He did do the will of God. Jesus who said, not my will, but thine be done. And, and that was, I believe that was referred to in one of the previous chapters too in Hebrews when it talked about you know, the temptation that Jesus had. And so I'm not, I'm not going to uh, repeat all of that. But so right there though, he's doing that again, legitimizing this claim. This is a big change that, we're, that he's telling these people that they are going to do, but it's okay. Because this is what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And every chapter so far, we, he has referenced Old Testament Scriptures. There has been a lot of Old Testament quoted in the book of Hebrews so far showing, that, showing these Jews that it's okay for you to, uh, to leave these things behind. It's exactly what you're supposed to do. Just like it was the right thing to cross Jordan and go in the promised land, it's the right thing for you to do to accept Jesus Christ and to go forward and to leave, back, leave those sacrifices and offerings behind and just accept Jesus Christ. So, look what it says in verse... Um, Ten, so by uh, which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, that's, that's a big deal. And so Psalms, it, it was prophesying to be done this way, where he said, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want this, those sacrifices. You know, a body has thou prepared. And that body that was prepared was the body of Jesus Christ. That was something that God gave. That was his gift to the world. Because think about this too. The sacrifices that they had always brought... It was, it was their offerings, wasn't it? It was you know, their animals they raised. It was their possessions. They were giving something themselves all that time. But when it came to the offering for sin that would pay for, actually pay for all sins, once and for all, it was not something that was given by man. It was not something that man had prepared. It was something that God had prepared. It was something that God gave and that's what John 3.16 is all about. It says He gave His only begotten Son. So how can we enter into His rest if we have to regularly be cleansed of our sins? We can't. And we've seen that theme throughout the book of Hebrews. You know, we're supposed to enter into His rest. We're supposed to cease from our labors. That can't be done if we have to be paying for our sins on a regular basis and being constantly reminded of that. That's no way, that's no way to live. And if salvation isn't a one-time thing, there would be no rest and there would have to be works. Because what are we doing? We have to constantly be doing something. You know, what are you doing this week? I've got to go to the church and I've got to leave a sacrifice again. I've got to do this offering. Why? Pay for my sins. 
You know, it's work. We're going to constantly be doing work. And that is not what God wants. God wants us to cease from our labors. So look at what it says in verse 19. So having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So our boldness that we have, it comes because, because of the fact that our faith is in Jesus Christ and not our works. Okay? How many of you, you know, my kids do this on a regular basis, they turn in tests with great anxiety, you know, because they're not real sure how they've done, you know. I remember when I was in school dealing with that all the time, but there was a few times I remember turning my answer, turning my test in with great boldness because I knew I did a good job, okay. Uh, but, you know, that was pretty few and far between uh, when that would happen. But when it comes to our offering for sin, we have great boldness to go. We have great boldness to go through that veil. Not like the priests in the Old Testament. They had to be really careful because if they went into the Holy of Holies and they didn't do everything right, they would die. We have boldness to go into the, through the veil. That is to say His flesh. Okay? Why is that? Why do we have this great boldness? Why was I the other day talking about how if I found the Ark of the Covenant, I would touch it and I would look inside of it? I'll tell you why. Because I have great boldness in the fact that I am sanctified, but that boldness doesn't come from something I did. Okay? It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus' blood cleansed me. That I am clean through His blood, through His work. He gets full credit for it. And while I'm all for praying and I'm all for getting in the Spirit, I'm 100% for that. I'm all for fasting and do whatever you can to sanctify yourself. If I were to get that opportunity to touch the Ark of the Covenant or something, I would not even feel the need to do extra prayer you know, before I did. You know, just in case. You know, I've got boldness because of the fact that Jesus Christ paid for my sins. And in fact, when it comes to like the, the Temple Mount, I, don't even, I wouldn't even see those things as holy anymore. Because those things were just shadows of the heavenly things. They were just a picture of the real thing. And my salvation has nothing to do with any temple you know, or with any altar or any item that man made. It has everything to do with what took place with Jesus Christ. And so I'm good. I'm covered. I've got that boldness. The body that God prepared for us was the body of Christ. And that was pure and it was sinless and it was sacrificed. And so we, we can have boldness. Not a cockiness. Okay? When we're cocky about stuff, it's because we, you know, we're proud of ourselves. We think we're really good. But it's boldness. But it's a boldness too that comes with a little humility because of the fact that, you know, I, I didn't do nothing. I'm, I'm no more special than anyone else. Anybody else who calls on the Lord for salvation will be just as saved as I am and they can be just as bold as I am. So there's no, it's not, that boldness doesn't come with any boasting. Boasting is, is excluded. So we can only have, the only way you can have assurance of salvation is in the work of Jesus Christ. And this is why people struggle with assurance of salvation, right? It's because of the fact that, well, verse, verse 22 
It says, you know, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Okay? The reason many people today are struggling with assurance of salvation is because of the fact that their salvation was probably in some way based on their works or what they think their salvation was. They think they repented of their sins and therefore, you know, they're saved. Well, here's the problem though. If you think you're saved because you started going to church and you quit smoking or something like that, you're going to have a lot of trouble when, if later, you fall into some kind of sin. If you give in to some temptation, if you get out of church, now all of a sudden you're going to be wondering if you're saved. You know why? Because you didn't have your full assurance in the work of Jesus Christ. Your assurance is in your own works. And you know what's sad? There are many people, we run into them every once in a while at soul winning. I don't want to name religions, but they're usually Catholic. And, these, and some of these people, they are sure they're going to heaven. And if you ask them how they know they're going to heaven, they tell you how good they are. That's pretty sad right there. That's pretty sad when a person has assurance of salvation that's based on their works. Now, that's cocky right there. That's arrogant. That's showing some serious pride. That's a huge problem. And you know what? There's Baptists that are the same way. There's Baptists that if you ask them, there's Baptist preachers. If you ask them, how do you know you're going to heaven? They tell you about their changed life. Well, if, that, if that's how it's going to be, all we're going to have to do is just get a little honest one day and look ourselves in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm not that good. And then we're going to start doubting our, doubting our salvation. But when a person has put their faith and trust in what Jesus did and has just trusted in His Word, then you know what? We have full assurance. We have boldness because... We know it's not about our works. It's about the work of Jesus Christ. So that's a great, uh, great thing to understand right there. I can preach a couple messages on that one if I wanted to, but I'm not going to do that right now. So verse 23, look at this. This is a well-known verse. Every pastor uh, teaches, uses this, these next verses. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We always use this for church attendance, right? And you know what? If, if you're going to be all dispensational and making this for the Jews, you know, do you realize that the main church attendance verse that everyone uses is right there? Okay? Talking to a a bunch of Jewish people trying to you know, either get them to believe on Christ or just encourage them to follow the ways of Christ. But let's think about what we've been talking about here to get the full understanding of this, alright? It has not been appropriate, inappropriate when preachers have used this verse to encourage church attendance. Okay? That's completely appropriate. But let me show you what the full context is of this passage is right here, okay? Because what, what have we been seeing for the last several chapters and throughout this chapter? It's that things have changed, okay? Things have changed. We're not doing the sacrifices anymore. And notice how he says, not forsaking the assembling as the manner of some is. Some people decided to forsake the assembling. Now, why do you think that is? Well, I might be reading it between the lines a little bit here, but I think you'll probably agree with this. If somebody comes along and they're telling you, you know what, everything's changed now. We don't have to do the sacrifices anymore. There's a new living way. It's been done once for all. 
It'd be real easy for someone to come along and say, well, you know what, man, I guess we don't need to go assemble anymore. You know, those uh, Sabbath things we did weekly, those Sabbath day gatherings, those Sabbath day assemblings that we did, why are we doing those anymore? We obviously don't need to do these things. We're saved once and for all. And do we not believe that a person gets saved and still go to heaven even if they never go to church? Absolutely. But, does God want them to go to church? Yes. Should they forsake the assembling? No. They should not. And it's very possible, what I think was going on here, is a lot of the people that were kind of getting this concept of, you know what, alright, we got a new way. Well, guess what? I don't think we need to go to church anymore. I don't think we need to assemble anymore. And any dispensationalist would get mad at what I'm just saying right there because you know they're always talking about the church starting at Pentecost. But I showed you at the beginning of the study in Hebrews, there was a church in the wilderness. There was a congregation. The Old Testament would use the term congregation all the time. And congregation and church are the same thing. And one thing that God wanted to continue in the New Testament era is the assembling of believers. That was not something that was supposed to end. While the sacrifices ended, the assembling was not supposed to end. He said, and so he's telling them, yeah, we've got a new way. We're going to leave those things behind, but let's consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. We're not supposed to give that up. Okay? Obviously, the assembling does not save you. It doesn't keep you saved, but it's something that we need to continue to do. And he said, you know what? We need to do it so much the more as we see the day approaching. So, it's very clear here, and, we, and anybody knows you know, that, that they assembled at least weekly in the Old Testament. We see in the, uh, the Gospels how they, assemble, they would assemble on the Sabbath. We see how Jesus had His manner of going in there and reading the Scriptures. And He's telling us here in the New Testament when He's talking to these Jews and He's telling them you need to leave all these other things behind, He specifically tells them not to forsake the assembling together. You all speak, keep meeting together. You all keep doing that. And you know what? Do it even more as you see the day approaching. And I believe that day is the day of Christ or the day of the Lord. Talking about the rapture. And I'll I'll prove that to you here in just a little bit. But it's very clear that while they did, while there was a church in the wilderness, while there was a congregation, while they regularly assembled together, it's very clear in the book of Hebrews that while a lot of things have changed, God didn't want that to change. He still wants them assembling. And we do. We need each other. Why? Because we need to provoke each other to love and good works. How many of us think that, you know, you know let's, let's be honest. I mean, but we need each other, right? How spiritual do we think we'd stay if we never went to church? If we never had an assembly? If you never listened to preaching? It would be real easy to start forsaking things. It would be real easy to get away from certain commandments. We need each other to provoke unto love and good works. Because well, none of us are right with God all the time. But you know what? There's almost always going to be some of us that are right with God. And we can always lift up that one when they're down. And we can help each other out. And we do. We need each other. And the assembling is not supposed to change. They're supposed to continue doing that. So that's very specifically what he's talking about there when he's saying, not forsaking as the manner of some is. These people are, alright, it's changed. And then they're changing everything, including things they weren't supposed to change. He's saying, no, don't do that. You all keep doing that and so much the more 
as you see the day approaching. And so, in verse 20, he mentions specifically that new and living way. And throughout the book of Hebrews, you know, new things are being mentioned. And, but one, you know, there's, there was one thing that hadn't changed, and that was the assembling of the believers. So, if anything, the New Testament, if anything, you know, we should be meeting more than the Old Testament church. Because he said, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So, you know, where do you get having church on Wednesday in the Bible? Well, if we want to be biblical, I think we need to at least be doing it more than they were back in Paul's day. Because we're closer to the day of Christ than they were back then. So, you know, it, it's people will do anything to just get out of work. You know, and to get out of something that they just don't want to do. And some people just don't want to go to church. Some people don't want, they don't want to do the assembling. And they are that same people that were in Hebrews, it says as a manner of some is. There's some people, they just don't like people. They don't like being around other people. And they would rather not go to church and have to deal with everybody's issues. And so, they'd rather stay home in their own little world where everybody, you know, everybody's just like them. You know, themselves. And they, they, can't, they just can't get along with people. That's a terrible attitude. That's a terrible attitude to have. And there's a lot, there's a lot of those people out there. And anybody who is like that and wants to come to this church, they're welcome to come to this church. They need to change their attitude. Because that is no way to be. And you will not have a lot of friends if you continue to have that attitude. But, you know, if us, you know, so if, if us as Christians, if we're going to hang on to the things we've learned, if we're going to keep them a part of our lives, if we're going to pass them along to the next generation, we are going to need each other. And uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I need all of you. I'm not ashamed to say that I need my pastor friends that I have that help keep me in line and help keep me on the straight and narrow. I, I don't want to be... There's, you know, there's some people they'd rather be that loner, just go pastor their own church somewhere and just not have anything to do with anybody. I'm not like that. I like, I like having friends. I need them. And I, I'm thankful for some of the friends that I've got that will get on me if I need to be got on to. I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for the church family. And I'll just admit it right now. I would probably not be a very good Christian at all if I quit going to church. I'm, I'm pretty sure I need this. And you know what? I don't think I'm a terrible person because of that. Because you know what? God made, you know, set up the church because He knew we needed it. He, he knows what we need. We were not made to be without it. We need each other. So, look at verse... Um, well, it, so it mentions and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I said I was going to prove that. I was talking about the rapture, okay? As you see the day approaching. Well, what day? Alright? Is it fair to just assume that this is talking about that day? That day of the Lord. How do I prove that's that day? Well, look at... You know, if you look back... Throughout that chapter, we don't see any specific day mentioned. However, if we look at the last verse of chapter 9, and remember, we're continuing a thought that was going on in chapter 9. It says in verse 28, it says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, what day is that? Alright, that day is the rapture. Now, the dispensationalists, this is one of the reasons they struggle with this. This is one of the reasons they call this a tribulation epistle, which is so stupid. It basically means this whole book of the Bible has not been for anybody since it was written. 
And it's not until we get to a group of people that are only going to be around for seven years. That is so stupid and so ridiculous. But the reason they have to do that is because it's saying, it's talking about when he appears. We're not supposed to be here for the glorious appearing because the glorious appearing is supposed to be Armageddon. You know? But then it says, for those who look for him. Well, how are we supposed to look for the appearing if we're not supposed to be here for the appearing? Well, it's because we are going to be here for the appearing. And it's called, the glorious appearing is called the rapture. And we are supposed to be watching for that. We are supposed to be looking for that. And we're even supposed to be able to tell when it's getting close. Because it says, and do it so much the more as you see the day approaching. How can we see the day approaching if there's no signs? If the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture, what are we watching for? What are we looking for? You know what we're looking for? We're looking for the things they told us to look for. We're looking for the falling away. We're looking for the abomination of desolation. We're looking for the rise of the Antichrist. We're looking for the one world government. We're looking for the persecution of the saints. We're watching for all of those things because those are very specific things that God said were going to come that we were going to see. And we're watching for those things. And we're... and. It's not that we're watching for the bad stuff. We're watching for what comes after it. We want, we want to see Jesus Christ come. And He told us, here's the warnings. And it's not that we're looking for Him. But we're looking for what comes after that. And I'll, I'll get, I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again. When a woman finds out she's pregnant, she gets excited. And nobody says she's stupid because of that. Nobody looks at a woman and says, you're nuts because you're excited about a baby coming. Because does a woman not have to go through a lot of pain before that baby comes? Absolutely. They got to go through some hard labor. They got to go through some severe agony. But none of them, you know, and, you, and what do they do? They start waiting for those contractions that hurt. And they start timing those contractions, you know, and after so much you know, they get so close together, they know, hey, it's almost time. It's coming. And you know what? Pregnant women, they look for the labor pains. They look for those contractions. And nobody says they're insane for doing that. Nobody says they're crazy. Nobody says when the doctor, go, you know, when a doctor goes to a woman, says, listen, she's going to have her first baby. Now listen, one of the things that's going to happen before you have this baby, you're going to start having these pains. And they're going to hurt. They're called contractions. And the woman, just like, like a Baptist preacher, just screams at me, You're stealing my blessed hope! You know? I was excited about the baby. You're telling me I got pain first? You know? And, you know no, nobody does it. But that's just the reality of it. And the truth is, before Jesus Christ comes, there's going to be some tough times. And if we tell people that we've got to go through some tribulation, we're not stealing anybody's blessed hope because God never promised us a life without tribulation. In fact, he promised we would have tribulation. So, you know, just more stupidity. All right? and I just I felt led to, to rant on that. But this is just very... It's so clear that this is talking about the rapture. It's so clear that it's talking about the glorious appearing. It calls it the appearing. And tells us to look for it. And tells us to watch for it. And yet, people want to make that... Nope, that's that Armageddon. That is so stupid. It, it blows my mind and I get embarrassed every time I read these things to think I used to believe that way. <laughs> but, uh, Lord, Lord, forgive me. Uh, he, he's forgiven me and uh, helped me see the light. But anyway, uh, also look at verse 37 of chapter 10. 
It says, too, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Okay? So I was talking about Jesus Christ coming. In a little while he's going to come and he's not, he's not going to tarry. Uh, look at what it says in Habakkuk 2, 2 and 4. Because that's quoting an Old Testament Scripture right there. That's quoting Old Testament Scripture, Habakkuk 2.2. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for a point of time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So right there, we see a, uh, another Old Testament reference and it's talking about when Jesus Christ comes. So that day that we see approaching, it is talking about the rapture. There's no doubt about that. And you've got to get deep, deep, deep into dispensationalism. I'm talking about not save deep to uh, say that that's not talking about the rapture right there. And every preacher too, every pre-trib preacher in the world when they preach about church attendance and they say, and so much more as you see the day approaching, they're talking about, they're, they'll say they're talking about the rapture. They'll say that that's talking about the rapture. And it's another passage that they are interpreting right, yet in, completely inconsistent with what everything else they preach. And that, my friends, is another example of not rightly dividing the word of truth. And it, make, and it makes them look stupid. So anyway, look what it says in verse 26, because this is a confusing passage right here for a lot of people. It says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment Suppose ye shall be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And people use that verse right there to say that's proof you can lose your salvation. If you go and you sin willfully after you've been saved, you know, there's no more sacrifice for sins. But is, does anywhere in there say we're not saved anymore? Now, there's some pretty rough threats in there. And what do we call them threats? Those are guarantees. If we do these things. But first of all, it doesn't say we'll lose our salvation in there. It's just saying we're in trouble. And, uh, and it, what it's saying is this. What have we been talking about before? We don't have those daily sacrifices anymore, okay? All the sacrifices for sins have been done by Jesus Christ. One of the things that they would do back in the Old Testament, if you go back and read the Old Testament law, there were many things, if they did them, they were, if, if you do this sin, you have to go and do this sacrifice. Well, the problem, and, and that was how they did it back then, that was what God commanded, but you know what would have been real easy for them to do back then? Well, I'm thinking about doing this sin. If I do, I gotta, you know, sacrifice a goat or something. That's eh, worth it. <laughs> and then, and then they go, uh, they go and do it. It's like, you know, kids sometimes they'll do that. It's like they know I'm probably just gonna get spanked for this, but it's worth it. I know I did that a few times growing up. I was pretty sure what the sacrifice would be, 
if I, you know, did certain things and there were times I wanted to do it so bad, I went ahead and did it. And then I just went and I paid the sacrifice. You know, I, I took the spanking and it was worth it. All right. Now, that was a terrible attitude. OK. And understand that God expects more from us now than he did back then. And for us as believers to go and willfully sin. Now, we're always going to mess up. We're going to trip up. We do things wrong without even thinking about it. But when a Christian goes and just, I mean, on purpose, does something wicked, knowing that I'm still going to heaven, that is a horrible attitude and God will deal with that. Because you know what? There's no more sacrifice for sins. You can't go and sacrifice a lamb to take care of that. You can't go and bring an offering. Okay? You, know, in church, you, know, you can't go and you know, confess to the priest. You, know, you can't go and you know, drop an extra thousand dollars in the offering and make up for that. No, there are some things if we do as Christians, God is going to deal with us. And you know what? It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And so we need to understand that we have a higher accountability than, the day, than they did back then. And when us as Christians who know the truth, who we understand that Jesus Christ paid for all our sins, and we have eternal security, and for us to just go ahead and do some horrible thing anyway, God's going to deal with us. He's going to chasten us as sons, and that's all we have. We just all we have to look forward to is a certain fearful, looking for a fiery indignation. There's nothing that I can go do to make up for that. It's not like remember when uh, the one of the children of Israel was committing fornication with a Moabite, and what did the priest do? Eliezer the priest he went and he threw a javelin through both of them, and they, and they off they did a sacrifice to appease the anger of the Lord. And they would often do that whenever there was... Um, David did that one time. When God was angry, he went and he started offering sacrifices to stop God's anger. And it worked. We can't do that anymore. If we go and we do some terrible thing, do, I mean, just taking advantage of the grace of God, it doesn't say we're going to lose our salvation, but it does say we are in big trouble. And that's one of the reasons we don't want to forsake the assembly. Because we need to be reminded of these things. We need to hear hard preaching against sin. We need to remind, people need to be reminded of things that are sins and things that God doesn't want them to do. Because if you leave here, if you quit going to church and you get into sin and you do something really bad, there's no more sacrifices you can do to make up for that. God's going to deal with you. God's going to punish you. He's going to come down on you and He's going to come down on you hard because here you are, a saved child of God, and you're taking advantage of the grace of God Shame on you. You're in big trouble. That's what that passage is saying right there. And it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. It doesn't mean we can lose our salvation. It does not say that. You're adding words big time when you do that. You know, we don't do penance. Okay? We're not like Catholics. You know? Yeah, you know, I'll just... I'm going to skip church today, but that's okay. I'll, I'll read ten chapters of my Bible. So you're going to do penance. You think reading ten chapters makes up for that. Anytime we do a sin on purpose, and I've seen Christians do this before, you know, it's like they think that because, you know, yeah, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'll do this to make up for it. We can't make up for our sins. That's why Jesus died on the cross. So if you do, if you do something sinful on purpose, just understand you can't make up for it. You can only get punished. And that stinks. And so watch out for that. Don't take advantage of that. So, 
Um, you know, in verse 32, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which ye hath, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise, for yet a little while, and he shall come and will not, um, will come and will not tarry. So, once again, keep in mind what we've been talking about. He's been talking about if you do these bad things, there's no more sacrifice. You're in big trouble. Okay? But, go ahead. Do the good things. You're going to get rewarded. But you've got to be patient. You've got to hang on. You've got to do the right thing. You've got to, you've got to stay faithful. You need to do what God said. You've got to do what God said to do. And then when we get into Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11, that's where he starts talking about faith. He starts talking about those who were, who were saved by their faith. But then he goes on to talk about those who accomplished great things and had great rewards because of their faith. So what, he, what he's telling him here, while that's pretty scary, that all right, I have higher accountability now. If I do wrong, there's no more sacrifice for sins. I'm in big trouble. But at the same time, if we do right, if we do good, there's great rewards, aren't there? We get great rewards for doing the right thing and for being obedient to God. But you know what? We've got to be patient. We've got to endure. We've got to be faithful. And so that's why when we get into chapter 11, he's going and he's telling all these stories about those who are of faith. People from the past. People that they knew about. People they read about in the Old Testament. He's telling them, be like them. Alright, that's scary. Thinking how, you know, you're used to just doing sacrifices to make up for a sin. You don't get to do that anymore. You're just going to get punished if you do wrong. But you know what? While that might seem hard, let's think about, let's talk about some of the great things that happen because of people's faith. And you're going to receive great rewards. And it's going to be hard, but you know what? Jesus Christ is coming back. He's not going to tarry. When the time comes, He's going to come back. And later in the Bible, it says He's bringing His rewards with Him. So be faithful. Don't give up. It's hard. It's hard doing the, doing the right thing. It's easier to do the wrong thing. But if you do the wrong thing, you're in big trouble. You do the right thing, you're going to be greatly rewarded. In the end, what's it going to come down to? Whether we do the right thing, whether we do the wrong thing, the just shall live by faith. And that is also a quote from Habakkuk. That's something that he mentioned in Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, verse 2-4 through and verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them which draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. This is another passage too that people will use to prove that you can lose your salvation. But that, once again, that's not what it's saying. Because remember, you know, we, we can't just look at this chapter without referring back to all the other chapters. This is where everybody gets in trouble with Hebrews. And this is why when the dispensationalists say Hebrews is a dangerous book, well, yeah, it's a dangerous book if you only take select verses and you don't use any of the context, but that could apply to any book of the Bible. It's just people do it more with Hebrews 
because you do have to look at context more. You do have to look at the big picture. And most, uh, most Bible students are too lazy to do that. So we've got to understand, we've got to, we've got to look at the whole thing, everything we've been talking about. And remember, not all Jews were willing to accept Christ. Okay? He, it's, that's very clear from the earlier chapters. There were some that were not going to enter, enter this rest. There were some that were going to fall in the wilderness. Uh, figuratively speaking, he talked about that. There were some that wanted to continue laboring for their salvation. There were some that wanted to stay doing things the old way. They basically wanted to stay in the wilderness. Not all these people here in Hebrews were saved. Um, and so when he is saying, we, I think he's saying a lot of times, he's saying it assuming that all of them are saved, you know, when it's very likely that not all of them were. For example, you know, in church, I might often get up and say, you know, are we not all going to heaven? Now, when I say that, I'm assuming everybody in here is saved. Well, that might not be the case. You know, and preachers often do that. Are we not all going to heaven? You know, do we not all believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we not all acknowledge that salvation is not of works? And I can say those things, but it, does that mean every single person in here agrees with me? You know, I hope they do on those things, but often, you know, the, the preacher, is, he, he says things in a way that assumes everyone agrees. But it's very clear, you know, in this passage too, I think he's kind of speaking in the same way many times, but it's, you know, it's very clear though he's not under the delusion that everyone that he's writing to is saved. Just like most pastors, they don't think that everybody in the congregation agrees, you know, but it is, it is just the right thing to assume it, because the truth is, I don't know, and I'm not just going to go picking on something like, yeah, I don't think you're saved, you know, and then I, that that's not how that works. And so that promise, um, you know, that verse 36 is talking about is that Jesus is going to come for them and He's going to save them. Okay, and Habakkuk, uh, and he said, and, and that was quoting Habakkuk chapter two, verses two through four, and when it's talking about those you know who draw back into perdition, okay. He's trying to get them to cross over. He's trying to get them to come, but there's some that are, they're drawing back. It doesn't mean they were ever there. It's like, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, it's like they were trying to get there, but they didn't quite make it, did they? They came short. Just like in Galatians, when it says that you are fallen from grace. It doesn't mean they were there and they fell from it. You know, they, they just fell away from it. They didn't get to it. And while there were some that maybe they're hearing the message, they're convicted, they're thinking about it, they're almost there. Alright, I think I'm ready. I'm ready to call on the Lord for salvation. But then all of a sudden, they change their mind and they draw back into perdition. They draw back into destruction. They were almost there. But they didn't quite make it. And he's saying, you know, we're, not of, we're not of those that draw back into perdition. But we're of those that believe unto the saving of the soul. And so, I, I, um, you know, what it says, you know, the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So in other words, if they don't have faith, if they draw back from that, then my soul has no pleasure in them. And those people are going to face destruction. So Hebrews chapter 10, it basically starts off as a reminder that the price of sin was paid for once and for all by Jesus. It's a reminder that God keeps His promises and that we just need to stay faithful until He returns. It's teaching us we need to be patient and we can't think 
that we can just go ahead and sin and make up for it by doing a sacrifice. There's no, no more sacrifice anymore. Those are done. There is only judgment when we sin willfully. We're, gonna, we're in big trouble. I think when we mess up sometimes, there's a lot of things we can get forgiveness for and God will you know, kind of give it a pass. But we, and, and we're the same way with our kids too sometimes. But when you just in full rebellion mode, willfully sin against God, He's coming down on you. And so there's um, Jesus, He's going to come for those who are waiting for Him. And we're supposed to encourage each other until that great day comes. So right there, that's kind of a, you know, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, what it's all about and some great lessons in there. Thank God we're done with the sacrifices. Only problem with that is we sin on purpose now. We're in big trouble. But at the same time, if we'll endure, if we'll do the right thing, we've got great rewards. But they don't come to her in heaven. Well, hang on. Just keep on doing the right thing. The just shall live by faith. He's going to come back. He's going to come. He's not going to tarry. Let's not be like those who, like, nope, I'm sticking to the old ways and you draw back into perdition. Don't do that. Stay faithful. You know, trust in Christ and stay faithful till He returns. And let's assemble. Let's motivate each other. Let's not, while a lot of things have changed, let's keep the assembling going on. Because we need that very much. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much for all Your blessings. I thank You, Lord, for the assembly. Lord, I'm thankful for the believers. I'm thankful for all those who come and are faithful and who encourage me. Dear God, I pray You'll help us to, uh, as we read this passage that it will make us thankful for what You did for us. I pray we won't take advantage of Your grace. Lord, just because we have eternal security, I pray that we won't take advantage of that. And Lord, help us to always remember when we are tempted, Lord, that there are severe consequences when we do. And I pray that uh, You'll help us to just endure and be faithful until Your return. In Your name we pray. Amen.